All rise. The honorables, the presiding judge and judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Be seated. Thank you. Welcome to the Court of Appeals. I appreciate your patience uh, with us today. We're a couple minutes late because I did not have any reading glasses. And cannot see without these reading glasses which my uh, younger colleagues were um, glad to remind me had so, you know, it happens as we age. So we are now ready to, to hear your case. I'm Judge Valerie Zachary. To my right is Judge April Wood. To my left is Judge Jefferson Griffin. Uh, assisting us today are Deputy Clerk Roderick McFarland and Officer Richard Remillard. On the calendar this afternoon is Richards versus Harris Teeter in Sedgwick Claims Management Services on appeal from the Industrial Commission. If counsel are ready, let's begin. Have you, would you like to reserve time for rebuttal? I would, Your Honor. Five minutes, please. Okay. <clears throat> May it please the court. My name is A.J. Elms of the Mecklenburg County Bar. <clears throat> I represent the defendant appellant, Harris Teeter, and as I said, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Um, by way of a brief statement of the facts, uh, this case stems from an August 3rd, 2019 car accident. Um, <clears throat> the plaintiff... oh, excuse me. Now, on page two of your brief, it said it was a shoulder injury from a fall? On page two of the brief? Yes. Uh, page, on page two of your brief and on page two of your amended brief? I think it said it was a shoulder injury from a fall. I believe there were two Form 18s filed uh, related to the lower back and hips. Um, I don't believe uh, that I've seen a form related to a shoulder injury. No, it wasn't a form. I think it's what, yeah, here it is, page two, statement of the case. Plaintiff Clarence Richards filed a Form 18 for an alleged shoulder injury due to a fall on 12 August 2019 and 29 August 2019. That must have been an error, Your Honor. Oh, okay, okay. All right, so it's, this is from the vehicle accident? Correct. Okay, all right, great. Just wanted to get that cleared up. Mr. Richards uh, was a truck driver employed by Harris Teeter at the time of the accident. He was driving back for, from Virginia on Interstate 85. Um, he closed his eyes for seven to 10 seconds per video review of the uh, accident and drifted off the road, crashing uh, near an exit and into a ditch, destroying the tractor and trailer. Uh, he did sustain injuries at that time. Uh, EMS reported uh, and took him to the ER. I believe it was Vance Regional. Um, he was released after treatment and began um, conservative treatment with Dr. Anderson. Um, at that time, or in the same uh, general time frame, the employer for company policy began a review process of the accident. Um, they got together an independent driver committee to review the accident to determine if it was preventable. Um, based on their review of the accident, they determined it was preventable, and Mr. Richards was terminated for cause related to a violation of an uh, established safety procedure. Um, he eventually uh, was referred to a specialist, Dr. Geoffrey, who provided some more care after MRIs and CT scans, um, cortisone injection to the knee, which resolved that issue. Um, Mr. Richards did complain of ongoing hip and back complaints. 
Um, and from the start, he told Dr. Geoffrey that he um, was terminated from his job. Uh, Dr. Geoffrey, I believe, was in agreement the entire time that he was not going to go back to truck driving. Uh, but Dr. Geoffrey didn't, um, despite us having a nurse case manager there, didn't address restrictions during this period because he didn't think he had a job to go back to. Did, did he have a job to go back to? He did not. Um, at that point, uh, Dr. Geoffrey ended up re um, releasing him at MMI in February of 2020. Uh, he received a 5% rating to the back um, and no restrictions at that point. Um, defendants at that time filed a request for hearing um, on the basis that uh, benefits should be terminated due to a release at MMI. Um, Dr. Geoffrey subsequently did assign restrictions from back in September 2019 that Dr. Anderson had uh, assigned just after the accident, um, which did restrict uh, Mr. Richards and made suitable employment at issue in this case. Uh, we've taken the case up through, obviously, the Deputy Commissioner and the full commission and are here today on appeal um, regarding the full commission decision. The standard of review for an opinion of, a, of an award of North Carolina Industrial Commission is whether competent evidence of the record supports commission findings of fact and whether such findings of fact support the commission's conclusions of law. The commission's findings of fact are conclusive notwithstanding evidence that might support a contrary finding. In determining the fact of a particular case, the commission is the sole judge of the credibility of the witnesses and the weight accorded to their testimony. Well, in that vein, don't, don't you argue that the employee's testimony lacked credibility? I do. And so well, if, that, if that's the job of the commission rather than this court to weigh the credibility of the witnesses, um, what is the, you know, what, what is the point of having that, making that argument? The point of making the argument on credibility is that in the grand scheme of all evidence presented, um, I, I believe that it was relevant that his, his, the statements he made are undermined by the factual evidence that's been presented. So aren't you therefore asking us to reweigh the evidence? When, in this case, I believe that there's been some mixing between uh, findings of fact and conclusion of law that make it problematic for us not to argue regarding um, whether something should have been included as a conclusion of law rather than a finding of fact. Um, therefore, I did make arguments that would consist um, with some credibility determinations. And whether that has to be taken up on remand is obviously not within my purview. Um, <clears throat> and finally, this court reviews the commission's conclusions of law de novo, which is obviously important here. Um, so basically, I am here before you requesting two um, separate but kind of related issues. The first would be that you overturn the Industrial Commission's uh, finding that Seagraves is inapplicable to this case and similarly situated cases. And I believe that we've met our burden under Seagraves and that benefit should be terminated at this time. The second is a more global issue. If the Commission's findings and conclusions stand, employers have been placed in a very difficult situation. Um, there's an issue between following their employment policies and then being able to comply with the Commission and the statutes and the case law under the Workers' Compensation System of North Carolina. Um, well, I, I, I have a question. Did, did the employee refuse to participate in Harris-Teeter's return to work program? 
the employee was not eligible for Harris Teeter's return to work program based on his termination for cause. And that was made clear to him from the start. Okay, so he didn't refuse though, right? So this is so. Isn't this a little different than the case in Seagraves and McCray, where uh, I, he was not engaged in rehabilitative employment and then was fired for something completely unrelated to the injury? Correct. He had not um, entered rehabilitative employment. This is under the vein of a constructive refusal of suitable employment. Did did Harris Teeter offer vocational services to this employee? We did not, and uh, it would be my position that offering vocational services to an employee that's been terminated for cause and who you could have brought back with suitable employment is is unnecessary and unreasonable. Is there well, not? I'm sorry. Um, no, no, please go ahead. I was going to say, is there a distinction between calls? I mean. Yeah, maybe he can't get back and be a truck driver, but is there, I mean, if he fell asleep versus if he's sitting at a stool, is there not a distinction to be made there? So I think that the, the, the key factor here is that the termination for cause was due to a very dangerous situation wherein they decided that he was a liability and should not be a part of the company anymore. And they have that right as an employer in North Carolina. Uh, of course, and I don't, I don't think anyone would argue with you that, that, uh, that Employee, they, you know, North Carolina employees are terminable at will um, in general. My question is, isn't there abundant precedent holding that violation of a safety rule doesn't bar compensation under the Workers' Compensation Act? In terms of compensability, absolutely. In terms of termination of benefits due to a, um, a violation or um, termination for cause, I would, I would disagree. I think that the Seagraves test has shown that a compensable injury that we've paid on, medical benefits, indemnity benefits have, have continued. All we're asking for is a framework from this court as to how an employer who could have brought an employee back to suitable employment but for their termination for cause, what do we need to show to the commission? What steps need to be taken? I, I think that there's, you know, I, I believe it falls under 9732 that we would want to include that the, the employees reached MMI, that the authorized treating physician has signed off on the job, and that it's a real job. All of those factors, I think, are, are part of the test that then Seagraves, Seagraves isn't, isn't a switch to cut off benefits. It simply shifts the burden onto the plaintiff to prove ongoing disability. How would you respond to the employee's argument that were this court to do that, it would it would graft fault onto the workers' compensation system that 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 the Supreme Court and the legislature have already de determined should not be there. And, and our intention it was never to bring fault into the compensability side of the workers' compensation system. The the statute makes clear that fault is not to be at issue. This is this is so that employers and employees know what they're getting into and what they've bargained for. At a certain point, though. If the disability is no longer related to the injury by accident and is instead related to misconduct by the employee, it seems inequitable to not at least provide a means by which we can shift burden onto the employee to show I'm still I'm still disabled under the act, even though I did something wrong and I've been terminated or constructively refused suitable employment for employers who keep substantial uh, return to work programs. But if you have a substantial return to work program, but you won't permit him to participate in it, how does that constitute a, const constitute a constructive refusal? So this, this brings me to the point that we've been put in a tough situation here, and one where I think the current state of the law actually invites the McRae issue of employers doing things that they probably shouldn't. 
So on one hand, should Harris Teeter follow their employment policies and terminate someone for a, a dangerous act and then misconduct? Or if they know that they are, they're never going to be able to stop benefits, even though they could have brought him back to work, do they keep him on the books and bring him back as a truck driver and assume that liability? But you, but you never, but you weren't anticipating bringing him back as a truck driver. He's not, he can't work as a truck driver any longer. But we, you were anticipating bringing him back as the use, the self-checkout cashier, right? That was the job presented in, in the, Dr. Well, Geoffrey. Yes, not, yes I, I, you're, you're right. Harris Teeter did not anticipate bringing him back, but that's what you were saying he was capable. That's the job that Harris Teeter. That was the suitable employment signed off on by Dr. Geoffrey, yes. Okay, so he's not, he's not gonna drive truck again for Harris Teeter or anyone else. I, that remains to be seen. Ostensibly, because it, it, since his doctor says he cannot do that, right? His, he can't climb into the cab. Right? His doctor did not believe that that was a job that he would be, that would be appropriate for him. So is he still a danger? I think this is what Judge Griffin um, seemed to be getting at. Is he, is he a danger if he's working as the self-checkout cashier? So I, I think that part of that comes into the, the time issue. I believe that all employees should be treated the same under employment policies, and they convened the um, committee to review his accident in short time after the accident, they made a timely decision and they informed him of that decision. At that point, that committee had no idea what the extent or, uh, of his injuries or the extent of any restrictions would be eight months down the road. They made a decision as to his employment and when you know the chips fell and he ended up getting restrictions after he had been released without them, um, a new analysis was taken to see what jobs we could have brought him back at. So the reason I believe that Seagraves is applicable in this case is, is well articulated in McRae that the point of Seagraves is to assess disability and the source of the disability. The commission has painted kind of a broad conclusion of law stating that because the plaintiff was not terminated from rehabilitative employment, Seagraves simply is inapplicable. I do not believe that it, for one, is supported by the law um, or that it necessarily makes sense that um, that element, when McRae has made clear that the source of the disability is the point of the Seagraves argument, or Seagraves law, and that Seagraves is supposed to be a balancing test that protects employers um, from employees who commit misconduct and could commit misconduct to be fired and know that their, their benefits will continue, um, and from um, employers who abuse the system as well, because I believe we see it on both sides. Um, I believe the current state of the law is actually open to more abuse than if we had a bright line rule that I'm requesting today. Um, if an employer doesn't know how they're going to stop benefits, then maybe they keep an employee on and they bring them back to work. And who knows in six months if that employer has a contraction in the amount of employees that they keep, who's, who's gonna be let go first? I'm not, I'm, you know, I hate to speak the hypotheticals here, but if you don't have a means by which to properly and lawfully stop benefits in a situation where equitably you really shouldn't owe them anymore, then you're, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, you know, there's certain facts I think that you could see where you know, say a bank teller um, 
is out on leave for a worker's comp injury and gets arrested for embezzlement, or let's say they get convicted of embezzlement, that employer has to fire them. But that employer could have brought the employee back but for their wrongful act. Should they not follow their employment policies and fire them, or should they risk bringing back someone who, you know, by law they're actually not even supposed to keep around anymore? But that's not the issue before us today, uh, is it? No, it's not, because I believe that the defendant appellant here followed their policies and are seeking the correct way to terminate benefits in a situation where they could have provided suitable employment. Well, you know, in, in light of the precedent we have holding that violation of a safety rule does not bar compensation, could the employers then, whenever an employee is injured as a result of uh, violating a safety rule, um, then uh, basically be able to uh, reduce the amount of workers' comp um, that they would uh, eventually be liable for uh, by terminating the employee for violation of a safety rule? I mean, I don't believe so. I believe that all it does is start an employer has to still, it's a compensable accident. Even if someone does the most dangerous, stupid, very, you know, thing, it's a compensable accident. We start paying medical, we start paying indemnity benefits. At a certain point, though, if the disability is no longer attributable to that injury by accident, and instead it's attributable to the misconduct that a normal, a person without an injury would have been fired for, then I believe the burden should shift onto the plaintiff to show that disability still exists. And there's plenty of case law out there. Um, the Russell factors would still be applicable um, as they have been argued in this case. But in fact, didn't, didn't the commission find that there was not evidence that um, any employee would be violate, would be terminated for um, for this violation. It's my position that the only competent evidence presented showed that he was violated for a vi or he was terminated for a violation of a safety procedure. Um, the the nuance of the law of proving a negative, proving that he w that he wasn't fired because of an injury, just because of the proximity and time. Um, I believe your honor has a case on point that just because the injury and the misconduct happened on the same day or had some ancillary relation shouldn't bar the Seagraves analysis. Didn't the Harris Teeter employee who uh, testified regarding that issue say that they could not answer whether or not uh, the, uh, another employee would be terminated for the same conduct? I believe his deference was to the, the review committee. That yes. he, he, would not, he would not predict and he would not testify to what the review committee would do because each accident is different. So that so would that be evidence that would support a finding that, that any employee would be um, terminated for the same conduct? I think that wrecking a tractor trailer at highway speeds is evidence enough of why he was fired. Well. If, if I may. Yes, please, please do. If the review committee had, had, had seen him swerve to avoid a disabled motorist or an accident happened in front of him and this truck had gone off the road, I, I, I can't imagine he'd be terminated because it's not an avoidable accident. This is, this is simply one where it's a, if, if it was an avoidable accident, he wouldn't have been terminated. Okay, thank you. Uh, regarding the termination for misconduct, uh, I believe that the competent evidence is uh, evidence a reasonable mind might accept 
uh, is adequate to support the findings. The plaintiff falling asleep and driving the truck off the road. He didn't challenge his termination at any time. Uh, the defendant provided documentary evidence uh, in the form of his employment file showing the, the reason for the termination as well as a letter saying that he, for the reason for the termination and that he would have remained employed uh, with Harris Teeter but for it. Um, like I said, we used the independent review committee and <clears throat> I believe the only competent evidence presented supports that he was terminated for causing a preventable accident and this was a violation of established safety protocol. As a, a general policy matter, uh, the commission made certain findings that, and we've discussed here, that a job was never offered to him. And um, I think it's important to make clear that in, in the scenario and under the framework that uh, I, I'm requesting review of this case, a job will never be offered to him. Um, and I don't think we want to support a law where, or even a case that sham offers are being made to employees. Um, I think that a bright line rule um, that provides that if an employer has met these certain standards, like I said, plaintiffs reached an MI by the authorized treating physician, it's suitable employment, it's signed off on by the authorized treating physician, the Seagraves analysis takes place, or some other. If you don't believe that Seagraves applies to this scenario because you agree with the commission's proximity to the accident, um, I still believe that a framework is necessary to allow employers who are, are trying to do the right thing and terminate benefits and go to the industrial commission to request termination of the benefits. But, but isn't it isn't that a question or issue that would be more um, appropriately addressed um, by the General Assembly? I think that the General Assembly has left open between 97.29 and 97.32 that judicial interpretation is necessary. So 9732 dealing with uh, constructive refusal and 9729 dealing with the right to indemnity benefits moving forward, I think that the case law has progressed enough that we, we need guidance from this court. Um, regarding the constructive refusal of suitable employment, uh, which this was inclusion of law four, um, I believe that I've discussed the reasons that I, I believe that termination for misconduct or fault, that that element of Seagraves has been met. Um, I also believe that a non-disabled employee would have been terminated for the exact same accident should he not been uh, injured, which would have been a miracle in and of itself. <clears throat> the third prong uh, with regard to it being unrelated to compensable injury. Um, as I mentioned, the Anders Court, Your Honor, um, found that a, uh, an employee who had been apprised of their policies on absences and medical appointments um, had, I think, a history of hernias and suffered a hernia. Um, he was seeking medical treatment on that day, uh, did not abide by the policies, um, was ultimately uh, terminated. The thing is, the medical treatment he was seeking that day were for what ended up being an admittedly compensable injury, the hernias. Um, therefore, um, it, there was a lot of procedure that uh, preceded uh, that case and um, many other issues going on. The court still found that it was appropriate to apply Seagraves to a case where an employee was fired for 
misconduct that had an ancillary relation to uh, the injury for which Excuse me. Please, please correct me if I'm wrong. It's my recollection that in that case, the, the employee was not fired for the accident that caused the hernia, but was rather terminated for missing work without notice. It, is that correct? Correct. He was the misconduct, though, had an ancillary relationship to the injury. He was seeking treatment for it. Uh, he had racked up, I believe, five or six previous uh, violations of the um, policy and that this was the fireable offense. Um, I, I point out the case merely to note that proximity between an injury by accident and misconduct shouldn't bar the application of Seagraves. These things can be logically separated, even though, yes, they have relation um, on its face. But th there's going to be plenty of accidents where someone violated a policy worthy of being terminated that resulted in them suffering a compensable, remember it's compensable, we're not saying that them doing something wrong, they shouldn't, it shouldn't be a compensable accident. It's compensable, but they should still be terminated per their company's policies. And I'm asking uh, this court to provide the framework for us to terminate benefits in that situation where an employer can meet, I think, a fairly high burden of showing this suitable employment that the misconduct under Seagraves um, and having a doctor sign off on the job itself. With regard to uh, plaintiff's ongoing disability, um, as I said, uh, should the court decide that Seagraves does apply, both Hilliard and Russell would also still apply. Um, these are meant to provide a plaintiff who's had the burden shifted to them the ability to prove ongoing disability. Um, Hilliard requires that a plaintiff show he cannot earn similar wages in the same or another job, and he also must show <clears throat> that it's related to the injury. Um, under the Russell factors, um, the first one is that medical evidence writes an em um, employee out of work for a, a period of time. Um, Dr. G offered his testimony directly contradicted this, both during the period that he was treating and then after he had reached MMI. For the purposes of our argument, I, I think that the focus should be on the period after reaching MMI because that's where the framework, I believe, is necessary. Well, um, but prior to MMI, I don't think um, that the argument makes sense that an employee should have their benefits terminated. Um, because it's not suitable employment. Um, under factor two, which the commission had an analysis, uh, the unsuccessful job search. Um, if the testimony that was presented to the deputy commissioner is evidence of a reasonable job search, then I really, I don't know how we're supposed to counteract it. it, it I'll be honest, I simply didn't ask any questions because I didn't want anything else on the record. Um, Excuse me, I think you're cutting into your rebuttal time. I am. And on that basis, unless the uh, panel has any questions for me, I would reserve some time for rebuttal. I do not. I'm good. No, thank you. May it please the court, my name is Camille Payton and I represent the plaintiff Clarence Richards in this case. This case is about a suggested change to the law that would make the safety net that workers' compensation weekly payments represent vulnerable to the whims of the employer. The court should find in favor of the plaintiff, uh, I'm sorry, the appellee on all issues for two reasons. 
First of all, even though North Carolina courts have not dealt specifically with this issue, there is guidance in both the case law and in public policy that helps with what today's outcome should be. Second, the plaintiff remains disabled. Defendants argue how, that- How's the employer supposed to finish payments? I mean, how, how does this story end? I mean, under, under, I think that's what your, your friend, the appellant saying, he's like, I, we need some way to know where, where this stops and where, where does it stop in your opinion? Your Honor, at the end of the 500 weeks, his benefits will cease unless he can show he is still disabled. Before that, if he returns to suitable employment, his benefits will cease. And then finally, the third option is if he does not cooperate with medical or vocational rehabilitation, then the defendants can apply to terminate his benefits. But the whole idea of workers' comp is for there to be a wage replacement there for him and his family if he's hurt because of the employer's job. And recognize that if the employer is successful in terminating those weekly checks, then we as a society end up paying for that family for the rest of his life and the rest of his uh, children's dependence on him. It's someone's got to pay for this person to continue to exist. And the Workers' Comp Act sees that as being the responsibility of the employer whose employee he was working when he was injured. Does the employer receive any benefits on the Workers' Comp Act? The employer? Yes. Absolutely. The employer can purchase insurance and in North Carolina is supposed to legally that protects his assets when an employee is hurt. So rather than the small businessman who's just running a lawn company having to pay for an employee's treatment, this insurance, just like any insurance, pays out because he has paid his premiums. So yes, the employer does benefit. One of the things that we did in our brief was talk about a number of cases in which the employee had um, violated the employer's rules and uh, ended up getting hurt. And what we tried to show through that is that it didn't matter to the court that the employee had done something wrong. What they looked at was were they acting for the benefit of the employer at the time they got injured. And if they were, then the case would be deemed compensable. The question isn't fault. And we emphasize in our brief that fault was never a part of the workers' compensation system. I find myself explaining to clients why they don't get pain and suffering under workers' comp. And the answer is, because in this system, you don't have to prove that your employer did something wrong. You don't have to prove that you didn't do something wrong. All you have to prove is that you were injured in the course and scope of your employment. What if the employer did something wrong? It doesn't matter. Fault is not an issue. And so if the employer did something wrong, um, let's say 
for the sake of argument, a Woodson case. If uh, the employer didn't put up trenches in the ditch when the employees are digging, then that is one situation where the case, case can be taken out of the workers' comp realm and taken into um, civil court. But as we've seen over the last several years, uh, most cases are not considered Woodson cases and end up staying within the comp system. Now, even within the comp system, if an employer did something wrong, there is some recourse. An employee can file an OSHA complaint. The law specifically states that if um, the employer violated the law, then the employee may receive an extra 10% benefits. Um, but I will state to you that that also is rare. Generally speaking, even if the employer did something wrong, the employee is restricted to lost wages, any permanency, and medical treatment. Um, can the employee get punitive damages? Never. So, what it, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so your colleague seems to, your colleague concedes that this is a compensable injury, so your client's clearly entitled to the, the, the compensation of, because of this injury seems to be the rub is that at the end of the MMI, your client now is allegedly able to do some sort of work and find suitable employment and hasn't, but can't do it at Harris Teeter, and therefore Harris Teeter wants to terminate the benefits. And that seems to be where we are in, in this particular case. And um, talk to me about the pertinent law on that issue. Well, as I stated, there is no law in which an employee has been allowed to <clears throat> lose his benefits because he was terminated. But what I can talk about is what would have happened if, work, if Harris Teeter had not terminated Mr. Richards. Harris Teeter and Sedgwick would have hired a vocational rehabilitation company to help Mr. Richards find employment or Harris Teeter would have offered Mr. Richards one of those jobs. If Mr. Richards had refused suitable employment at that point, Harris Teeter would have been able to terminate his benefits. So there is a path, but Harris Teeter cut itself off from that path. And the way the law is written now. Should they have to keep somebody who's, in their opinion, dangerous under their standards? That's an interesting question because no other, no other type of worker for Harris Teeter is terminated automatically when they are in an accident. So let's say the person that takes care of the produce slips in the water, but it was his job to get the water up after spraying the produce. Harris Teeter most likely would not have fired that person. Now, they would have thought this person was uh, not only a klutz, but didn't follow their policy, but they would have kept him on because that's the only way that they can ensure that he goes back to work in a timely fashion because they can give him one of their little U-scan jobs or any other position that they have. So the, the argument that I'm making is that we encourage employers to keep employees on the books no matter what they have done wrong 
if we don't allow them to terminate them and then terminate their benefits. The appellant argued that equitably you should be able to not owe them anymore. I guess I, before you move on, so are they arguing that they should just outright terminate their benefits or that the burden should be on your client to show that he's injured and can't otherwise get a job? Honestly, the defendants are arguing that they should outright be able to terminate their benefits. What the defendants want to do is file a request for a hearing, that's a Form 24, go before the judge and show the judge that we have this program where we put workers back to work. This plaintiff would have been eligible for our program if we hadn't fired him please allow us to terminate his benefits. That's how they want to do it. Right, and I mean, do you, rec do you, do you recognize that they're in a, a weird spot there, not having a, a clear remedy? I mean, are they supposed to keep, I mean, you, talk, you were talking about public policy earlier. Well, what about for them? Well, they've got to uh, either keep somebody that they've deemed dangerous on a, on a highway uh, in that job, um, and they conceded also that there are other jobs available, but. Um, and that job versus uh, moving them on to something else. Let me give you an example of how this could have been handled. The defendants could have decided that we don't want Mr. Richards driving truck for us anymore. However, we're not going to terminate him. We're going to keep him on as an employee so that when he's released from uh, treatment, we can offer him a job within his restrictions. Now that serves their purpose. It helps Mr. Richards get back to work and it keeps the taxpayers from having to support Mr. Richards indefinitely. I agree, that's, that's one way, but that's not where we are, correct? That is where we are. The only thing that has happened that is different is Harris Teeter, in my scenario, did not terminate Mr. Richards. But, excuse me, but even if they did terminate him, couldn't they still allow him to participate in their um, back to work program? They would have had to rehire him for one of those positions. But yes, if indeed they really wanted to prove that it was possible for him to get a job, they could have offered him a job. And that would have solved their problem too. There's no requirement under the act that they have a, a no rehire policy. Correct. But you recognize they don't have to keep him on. They can fire him for his misconduct. Right, and, and that's the thing. In North Carolina, an employment at will state, if we change the law for the benefit of Harris Teeters and other like, others like them, all employers are going to fire employees as soon as they reach a maximum medical improvement because they'll have no incentive to worry about how this case ends. They'll end this case as soon as the employer, employee reaches MMI. 
because it's to their benefit financially to do so. Both parties, in fact, cited McCray versus Toastmaster. And I think that there's a passage in McCray that hits the problem squarely on the head. It says, on one hand, the test serves to protect injured employees from unscrupulous employers who might fire them in order to avoid paying them their due benefits. That's exactly what I'm worried about. And then it goes on to say, on the other hand, the test simultaneously serves employers as a shield against employees who engage in unacceptable conduct while employed in rehabilitative settings. Now, the defendants argue that the Seagraves and McCray analyses should apply to this case. I agree with the commission that it should not. We agree with the commission that it should not. But we think that even if the tests were applied, the defendants would not be successful because the test says that the employee was terminated for misconduct. We would argue that falling asleep is not misconduct because as was stated in McCray, if you don't do something on a purpose, it cannot be misconduct. Number two, the same misconduct would have resulted in the termination of a non-disabled employee. And then number three, the termination was unrelated to the employee's compensable injury. The defendants in this case cannot get around number three. The testimony has always been that Mr. Richards was terminated because of the accident. In summary, when can an employee be terminated? When he returns to suitable employment, when he's no longer able to prove disability, and when he is no longer compliant with medical or vocational rehabilitation. When you say terminated, you mean terminated from benefits, right? Not, not from employment, right? Right. Okay, I just <laughs> want to make that clear. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, Mr. Elms talked uh, about the Russell factors and whether or not the plaintiff uh, had met the burden. We believe that the plaintiff uh, did show disability on the under the second prong, which was the production of evidence that he is capable of some work, but that he has, after a reasonable effort on his part, been unsuccessful in his effort to obtain employment. As the court is aware, Mr. Richards remains under restrictions. Not only has his doctor said that he can no longer drive a truck, the doctor has said that he has uh, restrictions that li limit his um, lifting to 25 pounds. And in Dr. Geoffrey's testimony, he said that my client has to alternate sitting and standing. Mr. Richards is elderly. 
uh, he. Yes, can you show me point where in the record um, that supports that he's made efforts to obtain employment? Yes, his testimony was that he had gone on the internet and applied for jobs. That was that was his proffer. Yes, sir. Uh, thirdly, the majority of his work experience has been driving trucks. He drove for Harris Teeter. He drove for another company before Harris Teeter. Um, he's very. He spent some time as a prison guard, but at this point in his life probably could not go back to that kind of work. And we know he's no longer able to drive a truck. Uh, his doctor stated that in no unspecific terms. Uh, he has testified also that he looked for jobs and the commission found him credible. So we believe that uh, the commission finding on that should stand. Judges, are there any other questions for me? I do not. I'm set. Thank you. Thank you. We, we don't. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I would like to address a few of the um, statements my opponent has made uh, with regard to our argument. Um, we're not arguing for a switch that turns off benefits. We're simply arguing for the burden to shift in compliance with the Seagrave standard when an employee has committed misconduct. <clears throat> I believe that the act also states that it's not supposed to be treated as retirement insurance and 500 weeks is a long time. Um, Defendant appellant has attempted to create a return to work program where they bring everyone back to work when they can. They've expended a lot of time and resources on nurse case managers and the voc uh, rehab professionals. Um, and they devote those resources to the people who can and, and should be brought back. Mr. Richards unfortunately violated a safety policy. He wrecked a truck when he fell asleep and he ended up hurting himself. I'm not arguing against compensability in any way. It's a compensable claim. All I'm asking for is the framework for employers who are trying to do it right to have the steps that need to be shown to the commission in a form 24 or a full evidentiary hearing if that's what's necessary that shifts the burden to the plaintiff and says it's, it's on you at this point to show that your disability is related to the injury by accident and not the misconduct that you were terminated for. <clears throat> um, with regard to the termination policy, Truck drivers are not automatically terminated. Mr. Richards had prior accident. He testified to it. He scratched the sign. He wasn't terminated for that because it wasn't a danger and it wasn't a violation of safety protocol. Um, I believe that not having the guidance in place at this time will actually lead to what I would deem as the, the risks that McRae discussed of unscrupulous employers. Under the scenario uh, that my opponent discussed, there's, a, there's another option that happens, and that is that an employer keeps an employee on after they've committed misconduct. They get them to MMI, 
they bring them back to suitable employment, and then they find a reason to fire them. And I don't think that's the just or right way to do it. But if you give them no option to terminate benefits of someone who should have been fired six, 12, 18 months prior, you're leaving these employers little option under, under the act. I think that having the guidance is important in this case. Um, the important part of the act is that both sides know the rules and can plan policies in accordance with it. Uh, and I believe that without guidance, you do leave open abuse on both sides. Uh, <clears throat> the conclusion left by the Industrial Commission leaves open a huge void for employers who want to return employees to suitable employment, um, but also don't want to be on the hook for 500 weeks of benefits for someone who committed misconduct, which compensability, misconduct, fault, not at all at issue. Misconduct leading to termination, that means that you could, you're no longer, um, receive, or you can no longer be suitably employed. Fault is at issue under both Seagraves, McRae, and other case law. For the reasons stated here in argument and presented in the brief, um, I would argue that Seagraves is applicable to the case at hand and that defendants have met their burden of shifting um, and that benefits should be terminated at that time. If Seagraves or some other amalgamation of the laws and statutes is the appropriate uh, test for how, how employers should be able to uh, proceed with terminating benefits in a situation where an employee was terminated for cause, um, there's suitable employment at that employer still available and um, the doctor signed off on it, and but for that termination for cause, the disability would no longer exist. I believe that that is an appropriate test to shift the burden onto the plaintiff to show that disability continues to exist. Thank you. Is there anything else for me? Any questions? Any questions? No further questions. Thank you very much. That concludes um, oral argument in this matter. We'll take this matter under advisement. I want to thank you both for your excellent arguments this afternoon. Mr. McFarland, we may adjourn. All rise. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is now adjourned.